Those Wartburg fans on Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, the loudest fans that I have been around this year, that's for darn sure. Those students behind the end zone, Alma fans were loud and into it. Endicott fans were loud and into it. This is the cake underneath the icing, let's be honest with you. It was a pretty intense night out there. Yeah, those guys look pretty cranked up. You had some uh, shirtless dudes, painted chest, and it did not appear to be the weather for that sort of thing. Yeah, that did not last. There was shirtless dudes in the beginning of the broadcast, and those guys uh, were, were uh, either long gone or well-shirted by the, uh, the time I got around there sometime in the middle of the first quarter. Somebody let those guys know that they made the broadcast and they're good. They got their shot. Usually there's a one-sided conversation from a fan when I'm wearing a D3 football shirt. They're giving us a hard time about the top 25 poll or what they think we might or might not have said on a podcast or what our prediction might have been for any particular game. But there were some pretty good conversations. We're waiting for this fourth down and three play, the last offensive play that Warpreg ends up running. And the guys who I've been talking to, who have been talking to me, say, what do you think we're going to run here? And I give a half a second of thought to it, and I said, swing past to Clausen. And then they said, are we going to convert the first down? Or are we going to score? And I walked away because I wanted no part of that. <laughs> the answer that was in my brain was not something they were going to be happy about. So I just found a different angle to shoot from. We don't want to stoke the fires on how much of the on-field action d3football.com controls. People think we make the brackets. People think we decide who hosts games or not. Who knows? Maybe people think we we have a say in results and how games work on a play-to-play -play basis. We don't make the bracket. You don't have to ask it. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. There have been 50 seasons of Division Three football. We've covered it for 25 years. We've had a podcast since 2007. We've broadcast the Stag Bowl since 1999. It's D3Football.com and the Around the Nation podcast, the only podcast directly from the folks at D3Football.com. We have been here every week all season. We will be here three times in this calendar week because we live, breathe, and occasionally sleep this stuff. I'm Patrick Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. Not a lot of sleep this week, but I am Greg Thomas. I am the Around the Nation columnist at D3Football.com. And Pat, my bags are packed for Salem. Cortland's bags are packed for Salem. North Central's bags have been packed for a while. They just need to refresh the uh, the week's worth of clothes and and pack right back up. We're going to meet everybody out in Salem on Wednesday. It will take a few more changes of clothes to get through a stag bowl week than it does for your traditional traveling of the Division Three playoff variety. And uh, here in episode 348, season 17, episode 22, we're going to talk about what do you think? Those two semifinal games that we had on Saturday, and we will start to get you ready for Stag Bowl 50. There will be plenty of coverage of Stag Bowl 50 yet this week on our website and also here in this podcast feed. But before we go any further, Greg, 
I want to thank the people responsible for sponsoring this edition of the podcast, and that is the folks at D3Photography.com. D3Photography.com, you can find great photos from both Division Three semifinals. They covered these games with two photographers each, so you really don't miss a moment and you really don't miss an angle on either of those games. Dan Hunter, Mike Atherton, great photos from the Cortland at Randolph-Macon game. Caleb Williams, not that Caleb Williams, for goodness sake. And Doug Sassy, the photographers at the North Central Warburg game. Those guys trying to stay warm out on the sidelines. I walked past Doug where he was seated on the turf behind the end of the end zone early in the first quarter. And there was a ring of snow around him on the turf that had just fallen around him and landed there. Their work deserves you guys going out and uh, looking at those photo galleries. There's a lot to see. Yeah, a lot of great shots from these semifinals from our friends at D3Photography.com. Pat, looking forward to seeing some of those people out in Salem covering Stag Bowl 50 this week. They're going to get a lot of great action shots from that game as well. If you have been uh, following the D3 uh, football playoffs, D3Photography.com, they have been all over it. You can get stills from any of those games as well as a number of events through the regular season and other Division Three athletics events by going to D3Photography.com. Pick up an order with uh, 10% off by using the promo code D3Football. There have been 30 games played in this bracket so far. 17 of them have those photo galleries. And then of the rest of the Division Three football season, there's 68 photo galleries to go look through. Now's your time to do that. And as Greg said, use the promo code D3Football to get that 10% off. Thanks to D3Photography.com for sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're just going to talk about these two games throughout the entire podcast, so let's go right into... Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball is going to go to Cortland wide receiver Cole Burgess. Burgess set the tone on the game's very first play from scrimmage. He took a slant over the middle, turned it into a 27-yard gain really negated a great special team stop on the opening kickoff by Randolph Macon. And then his first touchdown of the day was him taking a short pass, spinning off a would-be tackler, outracing a cornerback to the end zone. He's great up the sidelines, over the middle, and it showed on Saturday at Randolph Macon as he caught 12 passes for 145 yards and three touchdowns. Big day for Burgess, and he gets my game ball. If Cole Burgess is catching your game ball, Pat, it only makes sense that Zach Boys is delivering it. Boys started Saturday's semifinal, completing his first seven passes and finished the first half with a furious three-touchdown effort in the last seven minutes of the half. His third touchdown to Burgess happens while he's in the grasp and falling to the ground. That put the Red Dragons up 35-0 to going into the intermission, and that was the ultimate exclamation point on what was a nearly flawless half from the Red Dragons offense. Boys finished 23 of 30 with 279 yards and three touchdowns, and he gets my game ball. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. And I'm Keith McMillan. I'm a little rusty, but I think I still got it. I don't know if you can say I'm involved with the site this season. And I'm Keith McMillan. Maybe you should just take this out. Welcome back in, Keith McMillan. Keith. 
driving hands-free safely in the Washington, D.C. area, but game ball from game one, and first off, my condolences. Giving a game ball for this national semifinal in which your alma mater lost. It's disappointing when you get here, but Randolph Macon is, is, is uh, certainly not the first team to get this far and have their season end uh, in a disappointing way. I think it's, it's you know obviously fairly common for teams that are 13 and 0, 12 and 1, 12 and 0, 11 and 0 to have their season end in, in a really disappointing fashion. I thought Cole Burgess was excellent yesterday. Uh, boys, of course, excellent. But my, my game ball goes to the Portland defensive line um, because they really uh, controlled the the line of scrimmage, especially in the early part of the game while Portland built that 14-0 lead. And there were a couple of chances for the Yellow Jackets to get back into it, and they just couldn't get out of second and long, third and long. And a couple of times they they, they did even convert some first down, um, but they could never get their running game going. They went to the air, and, and it's not like they can't throw the ball. They had a deep shot to, to David Wallace that was yeah. you know, probably a touchdown if the, the defensive back doesn't make an amazing play on the ball. But I thought the, the Portland defensive line never let Randolph Bacon uh, get a chance to, to get their, the run part of their offense going, and that uh, threw, them, threw them out of their um, normal uh, style of play. And then you, you fall behind, and uh, you try to stick with what got you here, and they just made it really tough because there was just, there were never any running lanes, and the tackling behind them was really solid. Keith, doubly on brand today. We knew that you would want to spotlight defense and also picking four guys for game balls, Max Llewellyn, Sam Matty, Nick Lodaro, and Matt Ferrer. This is the freedom that you have when you're watching a game in person that you don't necessarily get when you're watching it on a screen is to be able to watch line play or to be able to watch how the secondary is working when you know you don't have the luxury of an all-22 view. Well, I'm glad you pointed out the secondary, too, for Cortland because there were a couple of times where the defensive lineman got the sack but uh, it was Drew Campanale dropped back and scanned the field, you know, went through his reads. And I feel like at least two times on a key play uh, in the first half, um, they were covered sacks. A lot of times, you know, if the quarterback hits his mark on a drop back or if he's in the shotgun and he has plenty of time to throw and there's just nobody open, that's the defense working in concert. And you really got to give credit, I think, to, to Portland from the second half, from halftime of the Alma game to halftime of the, the Randolph-Bacon game just seven points allowed, and that's crazy when you consider they gave up 34 points in the first half of the half they played prior to that. We'll talk more about that coming up in just a bit. How about a second round of game balls? For my second game ball, I'm going to go to Joey Lombardi. He caught just four passes in North Central's win at Wartburg, but they all mattered. He had a 21-yard touchdown catch, a 42-yard catch over the middle, which got North Central away from their own end zone followed by a 44-yard touchdown catch on the same drive that put North Central ahead 20-0. Lombardi's final catch was a physical 54-yard catch that set up North Central's game-winning touchdown in the fourth quarter. All told, four catches, 161 yards, and two touchdowns. And for his series of big plays, Joey Lombardi gets my game ball. I've got a game ball here for Zach Orr, Greg and Keith. Orr is a junior linebacker for North Central, and with the Cardinals' front line, missing a key component, not to mention the secondary missing one as well, even more incumbent on the linebackers in big spots. And Orr had two big spots where on his own he ended Wartburg's scoring opportunities. The first one came after the Knights had moved into North Central territory, already leading by one midway through the fourth quarter, and he just stepped in front of a bullet. Niall McLaughlin was trying to hit Carter Henry over the middle on a crossing route, and Henry was already pretty well blanketed by Ethan Gork on a third down and seven, but Orr is also backpedaling into coverage, and he reacts, and he picks it off. 
So after North Central takes the lead, the defense gets one stop, but Warper gets the ball back just short of midfield with 2.02 left. And on fourth and three at the Cardinals 21, well, we've already talked about this, you know where the ball is going. And whether Orr knew it was going to Hunter Clausen or not, he reacted and stuffed Turbo for a loss on the swing pass. North Central got the turnover on downs and was able to kneel it out. Here's Orr's description of that fourth down stop. Yeah, that was not my responsibility, but um, yeah, I just saw him open and I just knew I had to get over there and uh, make a play on fourth down. So I didn't see our uh, safety come over and I couldn't see behind me. So um, I just came over and made the tackle. What we had to do, just make a play when we needed it. All right, even if he's freelancing it, that was the stop they needed at the time they needed it. Those two big drive-ending stops for Zach Orr in the fourth quarter. Seven solo tackles, the interception, that tackle for loss, and one more, and that gets Orr my game ball. Keith, hope you're still on the road. Game two game ball? I think you have to go defensive line for, uh, for North Central as well. Not necessarily maybe for their impact throughout the game because North Central played well up and down uh, the roster, as, as did Warburg, and they gave us an, an epic semifinal that slots in with one of the you know, five or ten best of, of the past 25 years. But that key play on, on fourth down, I mean, think about how different the conversation would be that we're having today if that fourth and one on the five-yard line doesn't get stuffed, right? Warburg gets a, a first down there, probably score, so looking at a tie game, and maybe we're talking about a Warburg-Cortland tag bowl today if, if that defensive line doesn't make the, the play. I was saying on that play, too, you've got a couple of extra guys in, right? By that time, Martin Egbo is a starting defensive end. He's gone off because of injury. He got injured last week against lacrosse, and he was not able to make it through Saturday's game against Wartburg. Now, I don't have the whole uh, view of that play in front of me, but in addition to the guys who would generally be on the field at that time, Will Kettlecamp, John Sullivan, uh, I saw Cortez Jones on the field for that particular snap. You also had... North Central bringing in two of their star offensive linemen to play defense as well. You can see Jeske Maples clogging up the middle there. You can see Sam Pryor up front on defense for them. And then, frankly, you could also flip it around, of course, Keith and Greg, because on the uh, offensive side of the ball, Warburg lined up Owen Grover as a lead blocker and also defensive end Justin Grief. There was a, a whole bunch of extra unexpected people on the field for that play. And I just think it's so indicative of uh, when you hear a coach saying, we need you to play any role, we'll ask you to play. You go back to, to last week, you have uh, D'Angelo Hardy making an interception in the end zone where, you know, you need to, you need your tallest guy with the most ups to make a play. You need offensive line to come in and clog the middle on a, on a key fourth and one. That's the kind of stuff that, that goes down uh, in history and sometimes gets overlooked. Unless you're a listener to this, around the nation podcast and then you get that kind of insight right i hope that it's not just insight but also entertainment that you're here for because stag bowl 50 requires no 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 demands an epic epic remembrance of division three football in honor of the stag bowl's return to salem here's how we got to stag bowl 50 as we recap division three football since 1999 Woo! D3, we know it's the place to be. Salem made it special X some 30 years ago. Playoffs were just 16, and you know what that means. You might not get in them even if you're 10 and 0. 
1999 felt nice when the field expanded twice. Automatic bids for all seemed like an awesome plan. Playoffs going five rounds, next a week of showdowns. Now at large teams stay home and we're back where we began. We're here for stack for 50. Played for half a century as the best of D3. We're here for stack for 50. And it's back in VA, everyone say hooray. Purple Raiders on a streak, tying Augie's what they seek. Entering the playoffs once again is number one. Way out on the West Coast, Frosty's not the type to boast. They're still new to D3 and they're out here having fun. Rowan's guys from ACC, Pluto Spirit up D3. Semi goes to overtime, Spec to throw just one more time. Saint X says the, the record's gone. gone. Rowan props are playing on, but the loot's make it boot. Make the big time where they are. Play for half a century as the best of D3. We're here at Stagball 50. From around the nation, here for the duration. RJ Bowers rumbles on, Swath says program's gone. They filled out with a thud, miracle in the mud. Stagball 28, Shadis kicks it through late. Raiders start another run, 55 opponents done. See a new debuts and dance. Top clock gives Bridgewater chance. Chuck Moore goes for 95. Raiders streak is still alive. Raiders beat the Warhawks. Stay off of the river walk. 409 for Coach John Zaha's pick. He's long gone. We're here at 50. Played for half a century as the best of D3. We're here at Stagball 50. We don't make the bracket. You don't have to ask it. Now the crew enter the chat, Linfield says the heck with that Beaver, Garson, Damien Dumanso. Warhawks make their first stag, next year there's a second stag. In 07 they break through, it's a run for them too. Garson plays on Sunday night, Game 7 is quite a fight. Lightbo goes to D1, won that title so far. We're stag for 50, played for half a century as the best of D3. We're here at stag for 50. If their call sounds half-assed, listen to our broadcast. Tom's awakened, now they're gone. Karis coaching days are done. Kevin Bercolardi's twice, 16 title pays the price. Target field packs them in, quarter cuts the crowds begin. Stackpole starts to hit the road, local fans and no-shows. Urban Deets and Rindle coach, Karis tree has D1 growth. Cardinals show they're here to play, Warhawks drawing 20K. COVID shuts it all down, Wesley others leave town. Out all purple in the stag, circle back where we began. Stackpole 50. Played for half a century as the best of D3. They're here for Stagpole 50. If this game is vain, then we all know who to blame. The same for shame, the same for shame. The game is lame, so lame. We're here at Stagpole 50. Played for half a century as the best of D3. We're here at Stagpole 50. Had to ride a parody for this anniversary. We're here for Stag Bowl 50. Played for half a century as the best of D3. We're here for Stag Bowl 50. Singing for the haters and the tail gators. We're here for Stag Bowl 50. Played for half a century as the best of D3. We're here for Stag Bowl 50. Gone 500 miles with a thousand smiles. Wow, that was amazing. That's how you recap 50 years of Division Three football.
or by skipping the first 27 and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know but pretty comprehensive recap since 1999 uh and to do it in the style of billy joel absolutely incredible pat how long have you been workshopping that that just come together this week you've been working on this for uh a while i have been working on this since may my daughter talking about a project that she had done in uh, social studies that was somewhat similar and I was talking about you know the sort of stuff that I've done and she said what you should really do is do a parody of we didn't start the fire and so there we are what I can't imagine frankly is doing a, a any version of we didn't start the fire that doesn't have the events in chronological order it would be ludicrous to go out there with a version of we didn't start the fire that doesn't have events as they historically occurred so there's a little window into the creative process and a recap of great historic Stag Bowl 50 moments. Stag, not all moments from Stag Bowl 50. We don't know how that one's going to go yet, but from previous Stag Bowls in Salem and beyond, uh, a lot of fun. You should cut that, print it. I noticed you had a, you were a big fan of Stay Off of the River Walk. <laughs> That's a deep cut right there. Uh, yeah, going back to 2002. Uh, yeah, if you if people caught that reference, those are people who've been with us for a long time. That's the one percenters right there. It really is. We welcome back in Keith as we're going to focus a little bit more on the Randolph-Macon Cortland game. Of course, uh, Keith's already talked a little bit about secondary play, and uh, we've spotlighted uh, some individual play of Cole Burgess. Zach Boys and the defensive line. Keith, I start off with you. First off, Cortland just comes down the field and is just methodical getting into the end zone on their first drive, and then they get the defensive stop and the punt return for a touchdown. I thought we'd start there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, put, put Randolph Macon in a hole. I don't think it took Randolph Macon out of the offense they wanted to run, but it certainly, I think, you, as a player, you start to press a little bit when you realize you're behind by 14, and then at some point you're behind by 21, and you really need something good to happen. There was a point where the game could have turned, where Portland gets down inside the, the five. They missed three shots into the end zone, and then uh, boink a, a, a field goal attempt off the upright. Crowd gets into it for the first time, and for those of you who weren't watching, the way the field is at Randolph-Macon, it's surrounded by a, a, a dormitory. The crowd can watch from these balconies, and, it, and that was the first time the crowd was really, like, roaring. But Cortland never allowed Randolph-Macon to get a moment. The first drive, it was something that Zach Boyce said uh, after in, in the postgame, is uh, that basically Randolph-Macon is pretty true to what they do. And to me, that is kind of a diplomatic way of saying we know what they run, they're not going to get out of it. And so he said on the first drive, he saw the defense that he expected to see. And obviously, you know, at this level, you've drawn up some some plays you think will work against the zone, some man beater, some things you think will work if you get the defense that you're looking for. And so, again, you know, with a guy that level of experience, give him the defense uh, that he's expecting to see. He just uh, carved up Randolph Macon over the middle, threw a couple balls in tight windows. But I mean, for the most part, it was uh, it was it was easy pickings for him, and uh, and and Randolph Macon didn't get the defensive line push that I think they're used to getting throughout the season, and uh, made made uh, Zach Boy's job kind of easy. You know, Cole's always open. He'll tell you that. Uh, so it was it was good. We had a we had a really good game plan. Uh, 
watched a lot of film this week on what they did, and they're very true to what they do. Um, they got a scheme, and they, they, they live and die by it. Um, but I just thought that we, with the way we play offense, we can attack them a little bit differently. Um, and that was kind of our mindset. So we just we, we knew what we, we had to do coming in, and then you know the first drive to seeing them come out and playing what they playing what they were playing. It was, it was it was go time from there. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, Keith. I, I remember in 2019 after a, a St. John's playoff win at Chapman, St. John's players said the same thing in the in the post game where they said they could kind of see what Chapman was doing defensively. They didn't really change it up much after the snap. Didn't do a lot to confuse people and. Really, at this stage of the playoffs, uh, with quarterbacks this skilled and this experienced, you have to you have to get them out of what they see initially. Otherwise, a player like Zach Boys is gonna is gonna know where the ball's going before it's snapped. Sure, and I mean, I think before you before as a listener, or you know, if you're a, a fan of a different team listening, and, and you want to criticize the coaching staff for choices that they make in games. A lot of times there's stuff that we don't know, and I think, you know, in Randolph Bacon's case, they may not have the personnel at some parts of their defense to do a lot of different stuff. Like, in other words, if a team plays a lot of zone, it may be because they don't have a lot of good man cover guys. Or if a team doesn't, uh, if a team blitzes a lot, they may not have a good defensive line, right? So sometimes the, the defensive calls are limited by what your personnel either is capable of or just what they're better at, and you feel more comfortable, especially 13 games, 14 games into the season. I feel more comfortable playing maybe a more vanilla defense, but doing but be, being really good at it, rather than trying to do a bunch of stuff that we haven't done uh, up until this point in the season. And so obviously the plan for Portland was exactly what they had hoped for, and and uh, it did not work for uh, for the Yellow Jackets. What was working for Portland that you were seeing? Stag Bowl team is going to have a good quarterback. It's going to have a prolific offense in, in a lot of cases. You know, we've seen a few that that were mostly defense, but I think. There wasn't a whole lot of running room there. They, they did hit a couple outside zones, but there wasn't a lot of, of running room against the, the Randolph-Macon defense on the interior. But I thought on the passing plays, um, boys had a lot of time to throw, or he got the ball out quickly. There's one particular play in the first half where the, the play is like, he kind of just, you know, I wish I was a current you know player or coach so I could give, give it to you a terminology, but he just kind of gives a fake to one side, and they quickly um, spins out to the other side and hits Burgess. Uh, who's wide open because because of the, the the fake action held the defense to one side. I think they just did a good job of getting the ball out quickly, knowing knowing where the holes uh, in the zone were going to be, or knowing which when it was man coverage, knowing which man they wanted to go to. A lot of times it was Cole Burgess, and he's also pretty good at the, at the point. There was another catch over the middle in, in a different part of the game where the you know it was just the the receiver grabbing the ball and kind of having it uh, really tightly in his hands and even. Even the defensive back can't uh, smack it out. So, I mean, I, I think it's a, it was a lot of things. It was play design. It was uh, players having their best game. But it was also uh, quarterback not being under a lot of pressure and getting the ball out quick. Keith, we all saw the Cortland ones on offense stay on the field till basically the end of the game. We all saw J.J. Lapp get hurt and come off with a uh, what looked like a hamstring. Were you surprised to see them stay on the field that long? And did we miss any other, like, injury possibilities out of that game? I'm not surprised because, you know, you get that 58-man roster in the, the postseason and um, you just can't go as, as – you don't have really as many backups available. Um, I also think this is a team that's been, been uh, playing loose after surviving the first two rounds and uh, is playing its, its best football. So I think, um, you know, they, they might as well keep the vibes going. Like, I, I don't think there was uh, – 
I, they did throw the ball a couple times late in the game, but I, I, I can't. I didn't feel like it was uh, it was it was meant to run up the score. Um, I actually think from the from an injury standpoint, they're they're healthier uh, along the offensive line. This is what Kurt Fitzpatrick said after the game than they were uh, in the early rounds. And so you know maybe the most some of the most significant injury news is uh, is that they are are functioning up front uh, as well as they have all season. Keith, want to get just your take and maybe the Randolph-Macon alums' take or the Randolph-Macon fans' take as to how things went down on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope this is relatable from a from a big picture standpoint. If you're tuning in from Bell Haven or Hartwick or Illinois College, and and you're like, either want to see your program make strides or you're seeing it begin to make strides, and you wonder, well, how do we get to the next level? Because very clearly and North Central is probably the best example of this. There's levels to this. There's, we get to the postseason, we get uh, eliminated in a disappointing way, and we find eventually find a way to uh, build the program to a point where it can break through. I think Randolph Bacon is functioning as a, as a program and as a university or college um, as well as it has been. And the, it wasn't a lot of anger yesterday, obviously disappointment, but I mean, people were so proud to see the, the program. That's ex-players. That's current players. Uh, that's the crowd standing there and cheering them on when they come. They're coming back down 35-0 at halftime. You're at this point with a as a program where you know either you break through and take the next step, or this was the best it's ever going to be in Randolph making history. And I think we've seen examples of teams go either way. But it, it's also really fun, and this applies to Cortland too, to see programs break through for the first time and uh, everybody just being so happy for for it to be us for once. You know, no disrespect to, to Whitewater and Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor and uh, and North Central, but you know it's good for us to have our turn on on ESPN and and see our program rise and just appreciate for what it's been uh, going back to the 1800s. Keith also had a conversation, one which was uh, occasionally interrupted by background noise, with Cole Burgess and with Jack Whiney of Cortland. Keith starts off by asking them their reaction to getting to the Stag Bowl. Whiney's voice is the first one you'll hear. It's amazing. It's the first time ever for Cortland history. So we really want to win it and uh, make all this hard work pay off. You know? It's paying off for us so far. So we're just going to keep working and get after it. Cole, Jack, you guys talked a little bit um, in there about uh, the way last season ended. Uh, you lose a Cortica Jug game, then you come down to this very field and. Uh, Get off to a kind of similarly good start, right? It was 28, 21 and a half time, didn't score uh, in the second half. And, and, and then you think about that long bus ride home. And um, Cole, you talked too about the, the, the loss of Susquehanna earlier in the season, right? When you, when you uh, now that you can step back a little bit and start to put it in perspective, um, good things came from those bad moments. 100%, yeah, that, that loss, all those losses, they didn't sit well. But knowing that we had a lot of guys coming back and this year, especially losing Susquehanna, like. We, we, we won that game until we lost in the, in the fourth quarter. And five minutes of bad football gave us the one loss on the year. And, uh, but we learned a lot. We learned a lot in that game. And I'm not, I'm not sure we're here in this position if we didn't lose that game. So, you know, happy for, happy for that loss, I guess. But I'm, I'm trying to go win a national championship now. I hear you. Coach, coaches will say things like that. They'll say, like, you know, you learn more in a loss than you want to win or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, you played long enough. You, you heard all the, mm-hmm. all the coaching cliches. But, um <laughs> There's also, I, I feel like, going on the road. Um, you know, people complain about it at, at, at some point, but I feel like, uh, at least when I played, again, ages ago, 
I love road trips. You guys love these, these bus rides, Michigan, Virginia. Uh, I feel like, um, personally, it kind of brings us closer together, you know, being in an, an environment that we're not really used to, being on a bus for that long together. And it just, um, it really does. It, it brings us together. And it, it, it helps in a way, you know. It's us against the world. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, the, the other thing I always liked about bus trips too is, uh, yeah, it's like, like it's, it's, you, it's you and the guys and there's no, um, it's just football. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot else to think about. You know, I, I don't know what, uh, what do they do to keep you, keep you busy and distracted? Do they take you to the mall? Xbox and stuff. That's really good, honestly. We just find ways to pass time and... We talked a little bit before we started recording about um, the way this, this week is condensed, uh, the Stag Bowl. It's also finals week for uh, most teams, and you guys have finals this week. Unfortunately. Um, so you're going to go Saturday, take a bus ride home. You got Sunday. Uh, you know, the coaches will do what they do film-wise. It's just going to be a really condensed week. For the first-timers, it's, it's crazy, but uh, you know, try, to, try to enjoy it. What do you think the, the, the biggest moment for you guys will be? Up to kickoff. The biggest moment? Or the biggest, the biggest excitement. What, what's, so what's exciting about actually playing in the national championship? I don't even know. It's kind of like surreal right now. Like it still does, hasn't hit me. Yeah. But like we're literally one of two teams that are playing next week. And whoever it's going to be, they're going to give us a fight. It's going to be a 60-minute battle. And what's the biggest moment going to be? Prob- I don't know. I can't yeah. even tell you. I don't know. I think just uh, practicing every day. You know, it's going to be fun. Being in December, practicing in Cortland in that cold weather, you know, <laughs> yeah, hope, it's gonna hope. be it's gonna be something, you know, it's gonna be magical. And I imagine you know, standing standing out there on the field, you know, maybe the moments right before kickoff, you're, you're like representing your program and, and the guys you came up with. Um, it's really cool, and, and this happens, you know, if, in every round to see the te- you know the, the alumni come back and, and watch the teams uh, play and and, and uh, be proud of you guys. Uh, you guys are the the team now. Um, we don't know as we record this whether it will be North Central or, or Wartburg uh, as the opponent, but we do, um, we do know that there, there's certainly people out there, especially if, if you do end up playing North Central, who think that um, you know, that game could be a runaway. I look at you guys scoring 100, what's, what's the math here, 58, 49. What's that, 107 points the past two weeks? I, I wouldn't take you lightly if I was the other guys. What's your reaction? I mean, we got here for a reason. Obviously, whoever we play is North Central, they're a really good team. They're going to give us a fight. And, uh, yeah, any given Saturday, anybody can win. Um, I like my guys. We've been on a roll. We've been playing good offense, defense, all of our special teams. So it's going to be a national championship. I mean, it's going to be a game. Absolutely. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, about the defense past six quarters. Um, you know, again, 34 points given up in that first half at Alma. Only give up seven, and then today nothing in the first half. You know, fourteen in the second half. Uh, how do you guys flip the switch like that? Uh, I mean, I think we just we just executed properly. Everyone did their job. Focus on the next play. The next play. Um, we gotta have that next play mentality every time. Work hard at practice every day. We got a great offense to uh, play against every day. So you know, yeah, like just constantly improving every single week. Just get the ball back to those guys and, uh, and, and try to get like a quick drink because you might be back on the field real quickly. Um, what do you think about the way the defensive line played today? It looked like they kept Randolph oh, Macon yeah. in, uh, in, you know, second and long, third and long. Yeah, I mean, they played amazing. Like, everybody played amazing, the whole defense. It was just, uh, it was great. You saw what we did today, so 
I mean, it was, fun just, yeah, it, was, it was fun. It was a fun game. And, and one more time, just, um, you know, take, take, <laughs> take stock of the idea that um, if not for this really uh, amazing fourth quarter drive at Grove City, converting the two-point conversion, none of this happened. Oh, yeah. I was just talking about some of the guys uh, yesterday. Just like week one and two in the playoffs, we literally were one play away from not being here. And, and you know, a little bit of luck takes place if you want to make it this far in the playoffs. It's just a lot of football. A lot of stuff goes on. So, like, you got a little bit of luck. You know, Grove City kicker missed a field goal by, I don't know, a couple feet. We had a fourth and 15 we converted. After a fourth and five we converted. And then we go for two. And Endicott had us. They were about to punch it in. The last play of the game, but we, we stopped him. So, I mean, we did what we had to do in those moments, and uh, look where we're on now. We're, we're balling out. All you got to do is win by one point. That's right? it. There you All go. All you got to do. All right, Greg, looking back at a couple of key moments we haven't yet talked about, this game was 35 nothing at the half, but it didn't look like a blowout initially, even when Cortland scored on its first drive and then scored on the punt return right away. Yeah, Pat, after the punt return touchdown, Randolph Macon, they established a decent drive for the first time in the game, and they had third and three, really the first third and short that they had in the game. Drew Campanelli goes deep for David Wallace, but Cortland's Nas Gene Lubin makes a tremendous individual play to get a hand on that pass just before Wallace can get to it for what would have been a certain touchdown. I think the game takes on a completely different feel right there if Macon gets a gets to 14 to seven at the end of the first quarter. I agree. After that though, it didn't seem like Randolph Macon had nearly as many good scoring opportunities. Yeah. While we were watching the game, I I noted during that first half, how Cortland really dominated the early downs Randolph Macon. They were in third and long the entire half, except for the third and three where they use that opportunity to take a shot to Wallace in all in the first half, Randolph Macon had eight third downs, with an average of over eight yards to gain on those third downs. That's just a really difficult way to win games, particularly for a team that has been so run heavy and run dominant all season. Even if Randolph Macon didn't have to get away from their run first mentality early in the game before the score kind of dictated that choice for them, their down and distance situations helped make them one dimensional pretty immediately. Greg, the other semifinal probably belongs on this list of other epic semifinal games, such as Rowan winning at Mount Union in 1999. That's that Sadak call. The record's gone. That's where that comes from. 2001, with an asterisk, the Rowan at Bridgewater semifinal. That is stopped clock, gives Bridgewater chance. It needs to be an annotated version of the previous song. 2004, Mount Union, Mary Harden, Baylor game. But Mount Union coming back at Oshkosh in 2017. The 2019 game between Whitewater and St. John's last year's Mount Union Warburg game. Do not ask me to rank these. And no, I know that is not all of the epic semifinals, even in the automatic bid era. But we have to get to this game, Greg, a game in which, oh gosh, just for starters, how about Warburg winning the coin toss, choosing to defer and getting the defensive stop on a four and out. Talk about setting the tone. Yeah, I saw some chatter this week about whether North Central makes teams consider coin toss options other than the normal tendency to defer. And I think there's something to that. North Central scores on their opening possession in 11 of 13 prior games this season. So when you give North Central the ball, that usually results in your team chasing points from the very beginning of the game. But when you have Wartburg's defense, you have the confidence that you can beat that trend, which Wartburg did. And it was pretty apparent early on in this game that 
This was not going to be a game where North Central was going to have 600 yards and 50 points, and they're just not going to simply outscore Wartburg. Of course, what happened next is North Central methodically works their way out to a 20-point lead, and it started to look like North Central would work their way to a comfortable win. But just as they did last week after falling behind by 18 points to Whitewater, Wartburg found their offensive footing, scored a pair of touchdowns in the last half of the second quarter and got to halftime with some momentum and very much in a game that could have gotten away from them by you know one or one or two plays going one way get, and the game might have gotten away from them there in the first half. Agreed, right? Niall McLaughlin figured out some things about how to throw in that weather. He threw six consecutive incomplete passes to start the game and it's probably not just the wind, it's probably also the snow. Once he finds his grip a little bit, the Knights start running a little tempo. They convert five first downs through the air. They had two runs down on the goal line, get ruled short of the end zone, ruled correctly, mind you, before Hunter Clausen got across for the touchdown on fourth and goal from inches away. Such a much-needed touchdown, Greg, and that was the Knights' fourth snap inside the three. Yeah, Pat, it's interesting. You note the fourth and goal as fourth downs were a big deal in this game. This is not my stat of the week, but there were 10 fourth down attempts in this game. And we're going to talk about a few more before this game recap is over. North Central answers with a drive that ends with just an amazing example of Luke Lanon keeping a play alive with his feet. He literally has eight seconds of protection in the backfield before he comes back to the right side, finds his backup running back, Charles Coleman, wide open where he can waltz into the end zone. No relation. I feel like I need to keep saying that. But Warburg has 215 left. And McLaughlin chips his way down the field, gets a big play to Tom Butters, the tight end, down to the eight-yard line. And then the next play, McLaughlin hits Thor Maxstad on a fade route for a touchdown, and it's 26-13. to 13. You've got Wartburg getting two touchdowns on the board after a, a really rough start where they couldn't get much going in the first quarter and a bit. Uh, really, when they switched uh, to a higher tempo, that really seemed to get their offense on track and... Uh, really put North Central's defense on their heels a little bit. 26 to 13 at halftime, you've got a ball game. Yep, we've gotten to halftime. If you need a break, take a break. Go ahead, pause the podcast. Don't pause the podcast. We're coming right back. The third quarter features a reappearance of... Parker Rochford! Parker Rochford intercepted Luke Lanin when Lanin just threw it up for grabs in the end zone. I would have loved to include the ESPN call of his interception in this little clip, but they do not identify him correctly at the time, nor do they come back and correct themselves after the break. Definitely Parker Rochford, though, and just the second pick of Lanin all season. Yeah, curious decision by Lanin there. I think we're going to hear him talk about that play a little bit uh, later on in the pod, but, you know, weird place to put the ball up for grabs for them. I know, you know, that's a spot where North Central is in a position on the field where, points are available and just the odd decision on, I think, you know, something that I think the pressure of the situation a little bit, maybe forced Luke Lanon into a, a decision he usually doesn't make. Next drive features one of those fourth downs you were talking about. In fact, Pat, the next three drives are going to have key fourth down plays. Wartburg really starts to get Clausen going after that Rochford pick. Clausen has runs of nine, 15 and 11 yards on a drive that gets all the way to the North Central 35 before it ends with Julian Bell stopping Clausen short on a fourth and four play. So North Central gets the stop there. Wartburg 
gets a fourth down stop as well. And they get the ball back in North Central territory. They go back to the tempo. They wear North Central down. Thor Mokstad makes a nice catch on a post route to get down to the 10. They run a little option, but then Kusamano breaks up a pass. Third down is Clausen making a catch out of the backfield, getting leveled by Julian Bell at the two and holding on to it. And then fourth down, Bryson White, whose name we haven't called, goes down and digs out a low ball in the end zone to cut the lead to 26 to 20. Yeah, we've got a ball game going into the fourth, Greg. North Central gets stopped then for the fourth consecutive drive and stuff's getting real. Wardberg starts their drive near midfield after that fourth down stop. And after a couple of useful runs by Clausen and two short completions to Carter Henry, Wartburg gets a big pass interference penalty called on Julian Bell. Julian Bell was all over this game, by the way, in all kinds of ways, setting up a first down at the 11 yard line after an incomplete pass on first down. Wartburg gives the ball to Clausen, who just power rushes his way into the end zone. And Wartburg, with the point after, rallies back from 20 0 down to take a lead in the fourth quarter, 27 to 26. And after a scoreless quarter and a handful of empty possessions, North Central is really on their heels at this point. I mentioned I had a lot of interactions with uh, Wartburg fans standing behind the end zone. And on that play, Greg, the ball is snapped. I start rolling on the video and a guy behind me yells, make sure you get that great play. Make sure you get that touchdown. Talking about me taking video of it, right? Sure enough, a couple of seconds later, there is indeed Wartburg and Hunter Clausen in the end zone. And it is on video. And if you listen closely, you can hear it on the video that we posted on X on Saturday afternoon. So Jake Walker, big man up front for Wartburg, stuffs the next drive with a big third down sack of Lanin. Wartburg has a chance to make this really tough for North Central, but Zach Orr gets that game ball worthy interception. And Greg, how often do you see it where a team gets the ball in a turnover and immediately goes deep? Well, Lanin finds Joey Lombardi deep down the right sideline for a 54-yard catch and run down to the Wartburg 9. And three plays later, not only is North Central in the end zone, but the Cardinals tack on the two-point conversion to go back up by 7, 34-27. That was a pretty nifty two-point play by D'Angelo Hardy, who'd been quiet all game, really, on a play that looked like maybe it was designed to throw back to Lane in Philly special style, but that wasn't there, and there were no other good pass options for Hardy, so he just kind of tucked that thing down and ran it in on his own. But, Pat, there's still five minutes and 40 seconds left, and Warburg is going to get two more chances to get this game to overtime. Wartburg's next drive moves all the way inside the North Central 10-yard line, and the key play on that drive comes on a pass that is deflected off of two North Central defenders into the hands of Hunter Clausen, of course, who is able to advance to the advance the ball 20 yards up the field. Just an incredible play and had to have the Walston Hoover crowd going nuts. I tell you, Greg, if Wartburg had won this game, on Saturday, spoilers, by the way, uh, Warburg did not win this game, but we would be talking about that play for, I think, the rest of time, right? You can find that uh, video of that play on our X feed as well. I know that 465,000 people already have. I happen to be in the right spot for that one. Yeah, that play's legendary. If the result of this game is is different, still an incredible play. Uh, and great great camera work by by one Patrick Coleman to get that. The, the field revel replay that ran on ESPN, the guy who shot that was literally to my left. He did a better job. He framed it better. Uh, he's got a little more experience than I do and a slightly better camera. But I was very happy when I finally had a chance to review it. I said, oh, I did get all of that. Yes. After that almost immaculate reception by Clausen, Wartburg faced fourth and one at the North Central five-yard line. And this play is just wild, Pat. 
Wartburg sends in every big body they can, including Owen Grover to uh, function as a lead blocker. North Central counters with some big guys of their own. They substitute offensive lineman Jeske Maples and Sam Pryor into the game to shore up the left side of North Central's defensive line. Grover shifts to the left. Claussen gets the ball, dives, and just gets bottled up. Stopped short of the first down, and North Central gets that big stop. Yeah, not just Owen Grover, also Justin Grief in there as a lead blocker. Uh, a fun formation to look at. There was the briefest of holes, right? But you've got Maples there, all six foot two, 261 pounds of him. He's there to help clog that up, and that hole doesn't last long. People are still pretty optimistic at Walston Hoover, though. Wartburg still has all three of its timeouts, and they use them, and they get the three and out, and they get the ball back at the North Central 46. So Carter Henry makes up for a first down sack. He makes a pass catch, gets the ball down to the 37. McLaughlin scrambles for nine yards on a third and one to move the chains. Henry gets another catch on third and 10 to get to the North Central 31, and that sets up the fourth and three play I was talking about earlier. Whole stadium is on its feet. Everybody's making noise. I don't know if everyone thought they were slinging it out to Clawson, but I figure if I knew it, then you figure others did. And that's not only Zach Orr, but Julian Bell and Jaron Williams who were right there to make the play in case it got past or stopped for a loss of one on fourth and three. North Central kneels it out. Final score, North Central 34, Wartburg 27. Here to talk a little bit more about the game, we'll be joined by North Central quarterback Luke Lanen. Luke, one of the things that I saw down on the sidelines is as things are not going right for you in the fourth quarter, you're waiting for play calls in from the sidelines, but you just look really calm, and I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit to start off. Yeah, I was definitely uh, calm. Um, we've been in high-pressure situations before, um, been to two stag bulls, right. um, dealt with a lot of stress. Uh, lacrosse last last week was uh, stressful. Sometimes things aren't going our way, so I was calm. I I had faith in the guys around me, trusting the defense get stops, trusting my guys to do their part, um, trusting our coaches. So I've been in a moment like that before. So I was, I was pretty calm in that moment. Uh, kind of, can you kind of compare that to you know you just cited a, a couple of other games, last week's game against uh, UWL, previous Stag Bowls. How does this kind of stack up? Fourth quarter pressure, being down in the fourth quarter on the road with this loud crowd. I think it kind of compares to the Stag Bowl last year. Um, we had control that game for the, for most of the time until Mount started making a yeah. started making a run at the end. I remember two touchdown game, uh, crowd going crazy. They had the momentum on their side. We'd been getting a few three and outs, um, so they were coming back kind of like how Warburg was coming back on us today. So I think that's a really good comparison, and also like late game situation against the Cross when they made it a one score game. Right. Slightly different, right? You guys are actually trailing in the fourth quarter of this one. In that game, you could have just potentially just run out the clock and walked away with the win. You guys needed to do something here today. Yeah, we knew we had to score. Um, the entire second half, entire third quarter when we were struggling, uh, we were talking about we need to score, we need to score. And that was before they even took the lead. So we knew we had to score anyway, um, especially when they scored. Obviously, we had to uh, have a score of our own uh, to take back the lead. But, but yeah. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Joey Lombardi's play today. Obviously, I think everybody knows about D'Angelo Hardy. He has been the man. Uh, he hasn't been the number one man, but he's been a man, shall we say, for the Cardinals ever since his freshman year. Um, but uh, Lombardi, you know, not only had, of course, uh, other big individual plays during the course of this playoff, but uh, a couple of big ones today. Yeah, Joey Lombardi, uh, 
great player, phenomenal player. Um, also a great person, one of my really good friends. But um, he did everything right today. And he, he always plays with his heart beating out of his chest. He loves playing for our teammates. He loves playing football. Um, he's just an ultra competitor, got an X factor. Uh, I like to call him Big Diesel. All right. Big Diesel, Lamb Truck, whatever you want to call him. But uh, he's a smaller guy, but you couldn't tell on the field by the way he plays. But just a great athlete, has great speed, great hands, and just makes plays. Right. Big Diesel is listed at 5'10", 166. That 5'10 might be a little generous. I'll give him like 5'8", five, 5'9 five, five, on a good day. All right. Um, you say he has an X Factor. What The whole point of an X Factor is it's kind of undefinable, but can you tell us maybe a little bit more that gets us somewhere towards defining it? Uh, I think his X Factor is when the ball is coming on his way, he's going to get it. Nobody's going to stop him from making that play. Um, he's going to find a way to get open. That one scramble in the second quarter, I believe, he found his way behind the defense in the first quarter, the first touchdown. Right. Um, I think it was the first touchdown. He scrambled, behind, got behind the defense when I scrambled. Um, so he just has a way of finding me, uh, finding the open space, and making the catch when it comes his way. Pretty windy day today here for this uh, semifinal game, and it seemed to take both quarterbacks some time to adjust. But I don't know that it took you too much time to adjust. You know, I think the first pass was into the wind incredibly underthrown, incomplete, and then you completed the next nine. Tell us about just kind of, you know, making those adjustments to the weather today. Uh, I think at first uh, it was a little wet. It was a little more wet uh, than throughout the rest of the game. True. Uh, with the snow coming down as much as it was, the ground being wet. So when the ball touches the ground. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely blowing a lot harder at the beginning of the game, a little bit more wet. And as the game went on, just figuring out how, okay, how's the best way to keep my hands dry because that's important to be able to throw the ball, obviously. But, um. Just once I figured it out, figured out how the wind was blowing, um, I settled in and made made the passes when I needed to. I warned you I was going to throw in baseball, and people who listen to the podcast know I'm a big baseball guy. Um, but I would have to think there's a couple of things at play here. One, uh, a guy reading the wind like a center fielder does uh, has got to know what uh, has got to know how to read wind first off, right? Yeah, I definitely noticed it. And uh, I remember pregame, I always play catch with uh, Jordan Chisholm. He throws the ball back to me. I just remember, I even remember thinking about, oh, this is like, okay, I know how to read a fly ball. So when right. he'd throw it back to me, I'd know how to adjust to it. But just seeing how the wind would affect the ball flight um, as as the receiver and also being the one throwing it was important. Uh, definitely related to catching a fly ball. I think weather-wise, compared today to playing like a February or, or early March home game for you guys. Yeah, baseball. this was baseball. I don't even know if I would have stepped on the field. That'd be... <laughs> That'd be the worst condition to play in, just because you're a lot more standing around, um, yeah. especially in the outfield. There's a lot of standing around in a televised oh, game, though, for sure. Yeah, that is that is true. Those TV timeouts will get you. But, um, but, yeah, especially if you hit one off the hands or off the end of the bat, not a good feeling, especially in the cold. All right, you threw an interception today, kind of a jump ball. I know you said in the postgame news conference you accused yourself of thinking too much, especially maybe on third down plays. Was that one of them? Uh, I definitely think that was one. Um, I should have just thrown the ball away. I think we're on the nine-yard line, something like that. Just give us a chance to get points. There's no need to throw that up. Um, when I scrambled out, I saw the safety fly underneath him. So I almost decided to reverse fields, and for some reason I didn't. I think I could have got around the guy, but I decided not to, and then it just ended up being a dumb play by me. I know the uh, rep wants you here. I have one last question. So. Um, 
going back to the Stag Bowl, right? And this is a program that's been to the Stag Bowl for four in a row. And for you, it's three in a row. Coach talked a little bit about the importance of it being in Salem. I know all of that preceded your tenure on campus, but how does that feel? Or maybe how does it feel being in Stag Bowl 50, a nice big round number? Uh, it feels really cool. Uh, it's an honor to get to go play in a Stag Bowl, especially with the history of uh, D3, the history of it being at Salem, Virginia. I think it'll be really cool, like Coach said, for our alumni that were uh, all trying to get to trying to get to Salem uh, when they played. So. I think it'll be a really cool experience for us. And what if, and I don't know this answer, but what if we come around and then also tell you that you win a Gallardi Trophy, which is, I think, a distinct possibility as one of five finalists? Uh, the honor would be great. Um, I obviously couldn't do it without the guys around me. Defense get me the ball back in my hands, uh, guys blocking for me, guys catching the ball, running backs doing their thing. Um, it'd be a great honor, but right now the goal is to win the Stag Bowl, and I don't really have my eyes like set on anything else. Certainly nice for Luke Landon to be able to draw on big game experience, like playing in multiple stag bowls uh, to leverage uh, some sense of calm out of this situation in a hostile environment against uh, a really outstanding defense. But Luke Landon made the plays in the fourth quarter that North Central needed and North Central headed back to the stag bowl for the fourth consecutive tournament. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. Time for stat of the week. And my stat comes from the small type at the bottom of the box scores each week. It's been a good handful of seasons in terms of Division Three football attendance. I referenced it a couple of times earlier in the show. But uh, playoff games don't always draw those huge crowds, right? We've talked about the reasons why previously, but part of it is that NCAA policy forces schools to either charge students for admission or pay for their admission themselves. And then, of course, the weather is also a factor. But we had two good Division Three venues hosting on Saturday, two schools hosting semifinal games for the first time on their campuses. And they brought the fans, and often they brought the noise. Our first national semifinal of the day at Randolph-Macon was played in front of an announced crowd of 4,223 people. The semi at Wartburg was played in front of 3,525 significantly colder and probably louder people. All in all, a pretty good day for the turnstiles. I will say that when I rolled onto campus at about 1045 Central Time in the morning on Saturday, now mind you, that is three hours and 45 minutes before kickoff, the main tailgating parking lots were already full and everybody was already at it well done Warburg fans well done indeed excited to see that enthusiasm for the semifinals pat it's single season and career record breaking time for teams and players that are playing into week 15 and this was no exception zach boys already holds a bunch of career records at Cortland. most passing yards with 6722 and most passing touchdowns with 68 but those are not my stats. With his three touchdown catches on Saturday, Cole Burgess set a new Cortland career record for touchdown receptions with 33, but that is also not my stat. In setting a new record, Cole Burgess passed his own teammate, J.J. Lapp, for career touchdown catches. Lapp has 31 touchdown catches in his career. Cortland's two most prolific touchdown pass catchers of all time are on this history-making team, and that is my stat of the week. And of course, we will be monitoring J.J. Lapp's status for Friday night after he left in the third quarter on Saturday. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. 
We put out the call on X. Even before we put out the call, someone answered it. We're going to start with that question, and we'll take another one too. But asking right now, David Soliday, a 1998 grad of North Central, says, Ironically, since neither North Central nor Cortland have been to Salem for a stag bowl, can you paint the picture from a fan perspective on what to expect? Insights, suggestions, who will be the home team? North Central, number two in the region ranking versus Cortland's number three. Does that determine it? I'm going to start with that. That's the low-hanging fruit and the easy one. First off, one of the things I'm going to say is that I'm not sure how much being the home team in the Stag Bowl really matters. Uh, that's a distinction on paper, basically, only. Uh, the locker rooms are basically the same. You're on the bigger side of the field, and it is North Central that is the home team and is on the, I would say, the parking lot side of the stadium. Sometimes that decision, my understanding, has been made by ESPN because the visiting team is on the opposite side of the field, and if they're expected to bring more fans, then that looks better on television, and that is why I suggest that maybe being titled home team in the Stag Bowl isn't necessarily the the big deal that you might uh, think that it is. So expect, you know, come out on uh, Friday, be there early on Friday. There's tailgating in the parking lot all day. First off, there is live music, that sort of thing. Um, you know, plenty of uh, plenty of good things to do there on Friday. If you're in town earlier. First off, if you have an option of places to stay, uh, if you can stay in downtown Roanoke, that's my suggestion. That's the best area to stay in. After that, uh, I think better hotels are out near the Roanoke airport. And then after that, maybe you're looking at uh, some of the hotels in Salem proper. I do understand that Salem has uh, maybe upped its hotel game since the last time I was there. And Roanoke is literally the bordering town, the next town over. It is not a far trip from there to the Stag Bowl. A uh, fun Christmas festival, typically on this weekend in downtown Roanoke. Good options for eating. Good options for entertaining yourself after the game, for uh, at least for a little while. Knowing our game isn't going to end until like 10.30 or 10.45 because of television and post-game trophy ceremonies and that sort of thing. That's something to keep in mind, especially if you're there the night before. The Salem folks are... Interested in putting on a great show here for this 50th Stag Bowl. I was chatting with Carrie Harvey Cutter, who's the longtime director of civic tourism. He was talking about some of the things that will be happening. Uh, they'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stag Bowl in a number of ways. They'll have a couple of players from that original 1973 Wittenberg team that won Stag Bowl 1. They'll be out for the coin toss. Um... I know the president of the NCAA will be there. That will be interesting. I don't know that you'll have a lot of access to him as a fan. I don't know that we'll have access to him as a media outlet either. George Burge is your big tailgating musical artist. I don't know who that is now, but some of the people who have been the tailgate performers in the past have gone on to become people that you might know later. So that's the kind of thing you're into. Obviously, the Roanoke Airport is right there. Uh, there's limited flights in and out, and they're kind of expensive. That's kind of an expensive airport. I've flown to Washington Dulles, which is about a three and a half hour drive away. Uh, in the past, I've flown into Greensboro, which is about 90 minutes away. And there's uh, service to there from a couple of major airports. I saw someone on Twitter suggest Charlottesville. Apparently, there are direct flights from O'Hare to Charlottesville, Virginia. 
That gets you about uh, two and a half hours away. Others have suggested Richmond. In the past, there was commercial service to Lynchburg, Virginia. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but you might find options. And of course, it's not a terrible drive from Chicagoland. Lots of options there if you're coming from Chicago. And if you're coming straight down I-81, 511 miles from Cortland. Thank you once again to the State University of New York College of Cortland for saving the NCAA a little bit of money and taking a bus instead of flying to Salem as they were certainly within their rights to do. Greg, I know I monologued here, but I've been to a bunch of Salem championships. I don't know if you had anything else to throw in there. Yeah, your experience in Salem far outweighs my experience in Salem, which is just one. I've been to one uh, Stag Bowl in Salem, the 2017 Stag Bowl, which we thought was going to be the last one at Salem. So I'm excited to be able to get back to Salem and reconnect with folks there and that site, which has been really such an important piece of Gen 3 football history. So should be a lot of fun. My recollection of the event there was pretty good tailgating. The attendance at that game was okay. That was a Mount Union versus UMHB stag bowl. I think uh, UMHB traveled okay for the distance that, that was required there. Mount Union brought a, a good crowd. I know there was a lot of nostalgia from Mount Union fans who uh, were seeing the stag bowl go away from Salem. And that's a place, obviously, that a lot of those people had a strong connection with being there so often, almost annually for a number of years. I will say this. We're going to talk with the folks at Mac and Bob's. That is the famous uh, sports bar in downtown Salem to see if they might consider staying open later. I know people are asking about whether there's a post-game show, a live show for pod 350. 350 is a semi-round number, and it would be our After the Stag Bowl podcast. We have done it live there in the past. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. It's a distinct possibility anyway. Keep uh, your ears peeled for that. Mac and Bob's is a good place to go, regardless, one way or the other. This is from Scott Iverson at Jughead122 asking, has the NCC secondary been exposed these last two weeks, suggesting they are in trouble against Cortland? It's a really good question. Part of the issue is that Antoine Walker hasn't been able to go for them, uh, wasn't uh, playing on Saturday. I know he is listed as being in the box score. They put him in the starting lineup in the stat program. He did not play. He dressed, but he did not play. I thought Ethan Gork did a above-average job. Obviously, it's a bigger challenge, right? When you're talking about defending Burgess and if Lap is healthy, Laff and DVO, those are guys who are going to be a challenge. Jaden Alfano St. John is a handful. Maybe that's less of an issue for the secondary necessarily to deal with. You've got Julian Bell, obviously. Bell, amazing back there in the secondary. You know, Rummel is a guy who's been a wide receiver, been a cornerback, made a couple of plays on Saturday. Yeah, I think they're going to be challenged. Are they going to be in trouble? Were they exposed? I don't quite know. Or if I know that to be correct, I might reject some of the premise of the question, but I wanted to take this question just to talk about some of those injuries. And then up front, too, we referenced earlier Martin Egbo, who's, uh, of course, the CCAW Defensive Player of the Year, 
subject of a Greg Thomas feature earlier in the playoffs. Made a go of it on Saturday at Wartburg. Kind of hobbled off and did not return. That's a big loss if he's not able to go. He's been a big addition for them this year. I'm sure these guys will you know, make every effort. And the linebackers are solid and healthy to the best of my knowledge. Back to the question, have they been exposed? I, I think what we've seen is North Central have to play against some some really top-level offenses in the last couple of weeks. You know, certainly Wisconsin lacrosse and Kaiser Helterbrand, and he's got multiple dimensions to his game. This week, Niall McLaughlin, 27-49, 234 two touchdowns and one interception. I mean, not the most efficient day from Nile. Uh, they forced him to throw a lot. And so I think maybe what you're looking at is volume. I don't know that North Central played particularly poor pass defense in this game, but they did face a lot of passes. I don't want to step too much on our on our Stag Bowl preview pod, but I think a lot of North Central's success against Cortland defensively is going to have to do with how well they can get pressure to Zach boys without blitzing. It's going to be a lot of uh, North central's defensive line versus Cortland's offensive line kind of thing, because Zach boys, if you're going to say, if you're going to blitz Zach boys and he sees you coming, uh, we've seen him really make teams pay with that. And Zach boys, also a quarterback who's a little more mobile than what we see from Niall McLaughlin. So that's going to be an extra thing to account for, for North central's defense Cortland, the, the way that they're playing offense right now, uh, hard to say that they're not going to be able to score some points and, you know, any given any given Friday, Pat, anything can happen. These guys have played in one of the biggest rivalries in Division Three football. They have played in Yankee Stadium. Almost every single one of these guys who's going to play on Friday have played in Yankee Stadium. I think that uh, they're not going to get overwhelmed by the moment, I don't think. And that is, you know, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, that's a big deal. Alex Campbell, A. Campbell Sports, asks, how much does the performance against Randolph-Macon reduce concerns about Cortland's defense? Like, it certainly makes Cortland feel a little better. Cortland fans can feel a little better. I think, though, and I I hate to poke holes. I'm going to poke holes in this right now, though, right? You know, the first half against Alma, when for most of that half, you have Alma at its full throttle offense with its mobile quarterback, with multiple receivers who are threats with deep threats. That's the spot at which they gave up the 34 points, right? And things change in the second half in terms of Carter St. John's mobility. And then this past week against Randolph Bacon, that's a completely different team, completely different style of offense, different set of weapons, not nearly as many weapons on offense. They're the guys who are, you know, going to have multiple running backs to run at you and one key deep threat. And a quarterback who's kind of hurt and banged up and was replaced in the second half because of it. North Central is far more like first half Alma than they are like Randolph-Macon. And those guys are going to have their hands full. Cortland defensive coordinator Steve Cushing and company are going to have their uh, hands full in terms of trying to D up against these guys on the North Central offense. I think you make a good point about the different styles, Pats. Obviously, so much of these... Games are about matchups and facing styles that fit your personnel maybe better than others. Alma, a team that really put a lot of pressure on Cortland's defense uh, until you know they suffered some injuries that really impacted their ability to go fast and play the way that Alma 
usually likes to play. I think yeah, I agree with you. North Central plays a little bit more like Alma than Randolph Macon. That might lead us to uh, a very pointsy stag bowl. I like pointsy stag bowls. Those are some of my favorites. The points don't matter. That's right. The points don't matter. It's called being a professional. Points don't matter. You play to win the game. And then I give them points. I don't know why. It's just a gag to tie the show together. If you want to crown them, then crown their ass. All right, Pat. So we did not have any unanimous picks for our semifinals, which honestly was a little surprising to me when those came rolling into my inbox. The panel had a five to two split for North Central over Wartburg and a four to three split in favor of Randolph Macon. Pat, Frank Rossi, and myself each correctly picked both of the semifinal winners. Keith and Ryan Tips missed on Randolph Macon, but they did get North Central correct. Logan Hansen and Riley Zayas each went 0 for 2 this week, but those Wartburg picks were not at all far off, were they? No. That brings our totals for the tournament to Frank Rossi, who has run away with the postseason quick hits with 28 correct picks out of 30 so far. Maybe that should have been my stat of the week. <laughs> yeah. Greg and Logan each have 25 correct picks. Pat, Keith, and Ryan Tips each with 24, and Riley Zayas with 21. Heading into the last game. And of course, this week we'll have uh, celebrity quick hits pickers. By celebrity, I mean, you know, other people who are associated with the Cortland and North Central football programs. Also coming up this week, we are uh, really celebrating Stag Bowls in Salem. The history of Stag Bowls in Salem here for Stag Bowl 50. Uh, We'll have a big package of feature stories of remembrances of Stag Bowls past. We'll cover Stag Bowl's present on Friday with a long pregame show live from Salem Stadium in which we will also give you the first announcement of the D3Football.com All-America team. We'll have interviews with coaches and players for Stag Bowl 50 between Cortland and North Central, so we'll have that for you. And then Keith McMillan and I with Frank Rossi sparkling in some manner on the field. As our sideline guy will bring you full audio coverage of Stag Bowl 50. If you've been watching the national semifinals and been disenchanted with some of the play-by-play or commentary or think they're missing Division Three perspective or Division Three knowledge, you can listen to us. If their call sounds half-assed, listen to our broadcast, which will start right around kickoff with the pregame coverage starting at about 5 o'clock Eastern. So we'll have that for you. Keith and I have called all of the Stagbulls on audio starting back in 1999. We'll also get to announce who wins the Gallardi Trophy. As I mentioned to Luke Lanin, do not know who that is at this time. We will learn at some point and then plan an appropriate way to make that announcement depending on who wins it whether they are there or not. Lots of things. Now that there's not a Gallardi Trophy banquet anymore before the game, now we're being creative. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 348, released on December 11th, 2023. The next podcast in this feed will drop late Thursday, early Friday to get you ready for Stag Bowl 50. And we'll have a lot more voices to talk about the upcoming game. 
So thanks for listening and keep an eye out for continuing coverage this week. Wrapping up the 2023 Division Three football season, we're very thankful for the support of our monthly Patreon subscribers. And you can join them or learn more about it by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. And if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum about the show. If you're the mom of a coach, do you know other people who are maybe also fans of the school that your son coaches at? You should let them know about this podcast. And uh, you can also do that by giving us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined to, because that will help other people find the show. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on X using the D3FB hashtag. I post from at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Uptime this week. 92.7%. Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Patrick Coleman. It's written by Patrick Coleman and Greg Thomas. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Thanks for joining us, Keith McMillan. Also, additional audio provided by Keith McMillan and Ray Martell. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of those tracks, and you can find them at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Luke Lane and Cole Burgess, Jack Whiney for joining us, Keith McMillan, of course, the OG host and the originator of Around the Nation on d3football.com. We're super grateful for that uh, and grateful for Greg Thomas. Wrapping up here, not quite two more pods to go, but wrapping up season four as co-host and columnist. Well, we got five more days. By the time this drops, yeah. It's a rush to the end, right? At least we're not trying to take finals. That is true. I'm not trying to give finals either, which is which I'm thankful for. Finals okay. week. That's finals right. week on my campus. So um, things will be clearing out day by day as uh, our students finish up and head off to their winter breaks. Uh, I will be... On the road, I'm. I see Pat. I thought ahead, got my ticket straight into Roanoke. No, no two-hour or three-hour drive for me uh, on this trip. Gonna drop right into Roanoke, right into the action. I found that Roanoke was hideously expensive, particularly this year. But I do fly into Roanoke and I fly out of Greensboro, so I have that going for me, which is nice. I feel like Greensboro is your go-to. Uh, that's your go-to departure site from Salem Stag Bowls. Greensboro to Atlanta to Minneapolis is a reasonable enough way to go on Delta. I am Delta in, American out. You want to go back to that and do Thor Mockstad? Yeah, what did I say? Troy? Oh, yeah. I definitely want to say Thor. No two games i count about 12 game balls it is the season of giving that's not going in the show <laughs> <laughs>